All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guests are Rob Bernacki and Stefan Keston. They've just brought out an amazing new guide for athletes over 40. A guide that will teach you how to defeat the younger, more athletic opponent, which is a must-purchase for all Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu athletes, as the skills, concepts and techniques in here are like a cheat code for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu success, no matter your age. Rob Bernacki is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and head instructor of Island Top Team. He's among the forefront of the new wave of BJJ instructors using sports science, biomechanics, kinesiology and a conceptual approach to the martial arts. Rob is trained with some of the world's best, teaches seminars at our academies, is a sought after for private instruction by other BJJ instructors seeking cutting edge information and coaches high level competitors to victory in high level competition. Stefan Keston is a BJJ black belt who's trained for over 40 years in the martial arts, including many grappling arts. His company, Grapple Arts, produces some of the best instructionals available. His YouTube BJJ videos have over 64 million views, and he's produced over 36 BJJ instructionals, and has published three books on the topic. Stefan has worked with Rob Bernacki on a number of very successful instructionals. The underlying theme of these is scientific and biomechanically based approach to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. These instructionals have been described by many as the best and most useful instructionals they've ever seen. The Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for Old Fucks instructional will definitely help improve your skills, reduce your injuries and improve your longevity on the mat, and to help you tap out a lot of young punks along the way. What's better than that? So in this interview, I tax the guys to find out what mindset changes, skill development, game switches and lifestyle choices should an older athlete make to become the best that they can be, regardless of their age. Apologies for my mic settings here. My side had a bit of an echo, but the quality answers from Stefan and Rob will more than make up for that. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you guys for coming on. It's an absolute honour to have you back on. I've had the privilege of interviewing you both before, but for those people under a rock who maybe don't recognise the name, could you give quick introductions? Starting with Stefan? Well, my name is Stefan Kesting. I've been running Grapple Arts for God knows how long. Uh, I would guess about 20 years. It's way too long. I've been doing jiu-jitsu since the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, I'm still enjoying it. So that, that's that's me. Uh, and I'm uh, Rob Bernacki. I am the proprietor of BJJConcepts.net, as well as uh, several instructionals with Stefan here at Grapple Arts. And uh, I'm a giant nerd. I talk about conceptual jujitsu quite a bit. And for some reason, people seem to enjoy what I do. So I keep doing it. 
I can't say fairer than that. So what was the inspiration for um, BJJ for all the facts? Because I tweeted out yesterday about how I thought the content was amazing and there's so much there for anybody starting of any age. You know, there's a lot of concepts there. There's a lot of like ground stuff, grip stuff. You cover so much. It's almost like an instructional in each section. But what was the inspiration for go down the BJJ for old facts route? Well, I think it's because we're both old as fuck. Uh, so uh, I know for me, it, it's just like I'm, I'm 46 now. And I think the transition from, uh, I guess, you know, like in your 30s, you don't really feel it as much. I know, you know, you're starting to get older. You don't have the same uh, athletic ability and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I, I was never all that much of an athlete. Um so I, I guess I, I wouldn't say that I, I hit as much of a wall um, in my 40s athletically as, as maybe some people do, but I certainly hit a wall in terms of um, recovery and just being able to like maintain a certain level of fitness and all that kind of stuff. So um, I got injured a little bit more often uh, in ways that took longer to recover than they would have in the past, and that caused me to have to alter my uh, just my style, how I played for much longer than normal. Like, that's something I've always done. I've always, and I mean, I recommend everybody do it. You know, if you've got a knee injury, play half guard. You know, if you've got an elbow injury, do a lot of no hands guard retention. I've always done that kind of stuff. But there were prolonged periods of like months where I just altered how I was playing certain positions that caused me to change my style. And I, I think that was probably why I suggested um, the topic to Stefan. Yeah, I'm certainly very interested in the topic. I'm 53. I just turned 53. And it uh, it's true what Daniel Santo says, that your game has to change every decade, every 10 years, right? The, how you play in your 20s is going to be different from how you play in your 30s. How you play in your 30s is going to be different from how you play in your 40s. And by God, <laughs> once you start adding in the, uh, you know, I've had a, a new hip put in uh, a year ago or so. I've had a way too many orthopedic surgeries. I think it's ten is the latest count. You know, had a new kidney replaced. Uh, so you, you're just not moving the same way that you did when you were younger, and it's it's humbling. But it also doesn't mean that you necessarily need to stop uh, training altogether. You just need to change what you're doing. Because I definitely felt it, you know, like I was like, I'm 30-odd, I'm fine, no worries, and I'm going to be 40 in November. And I suddenly realized I'm carrying around a dumpster fire of a body. My jiu-jitsu's just gone, you think you're barreling bolos? Don't be silly. You know, how do we start doing like an analysis? Because you say in the promotional information, we need to, you know, we need to look at a game that works for an older athlete. How do we start even looking and doing like an 80-20 analysis of our jiu-jitsu and saying, Right, leave that, leave that. You know, because you talk a great deal about like the um, seated guard and how grip fighting isn't going to be the best, like, you know, going for spider guard, for example, isn't the best approach. What could we be doing? I mean, I'm a big fan of pressure passing and cooking opponents as a pass. What sort of games work best for an older athlete? Rob, do you want to take this? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I mean, you mentioned two of the elements already, which is pressure passing. Uh, although pressure passing is, in my opinion, often mischaracterized as being like, you know, this is the game that you want to use as an older athlete, and then they get you to focus on the over unders pass, which, in my opinion, is not the best. 
because it, uh, I mean, sure, I, I shouldn't say that. It, it, it's a great pass. Like, I'm not trying to say the, the over-unders pass isn't a great pass. But if you're an older athlete who is just learning how to do the over-unders pass, uh, your neck is going to sustain a tremendous amount of uh, abuse. And like I know quite a few guys for whom that was their bread and butter pass, you know, coming up as guys in their 20s and their 30s, and now their necks are pretty much fucked in their 40s. So, uh, you know, if you're already quite good at it and you've got a strong neck, you know, have at it. But I think uh, that's an example of something that, you know, we, they, people just say pressure passing, and then so people jump on the, the over-unders passes. Sorry for that tangent, but I think in general, pressure passing is good. Um, I think more so understanding the distinction between, uh, and we talk about this a little bit in the instructional, uh, uh, that that's, sorry, like, because the, the, just to clarify, the, the volume that's been released so far that is currently available is the, the, the bottom game one. We haven't um, yet released the, the top game passing volume, which is yet to come. And we will talk about this in this. So when I say we talk about this in the instructional, we filmed them back to back. So uh, yeah, the, the, the top game one is in value. But in that instructional, we do discuss the idea of establishing uh, a base passing position versus a, uh, a guard. So there's a big distinction between the athleticism required to pass a guard where you've got to disentangle and run around and then respond to a lot of what they're doing versus establishing a base passing position that shuts down the the general offense available from a guard and then working from there. And that can be a base passing position that's you know quite pressure-based or it can be a, a base passing position that's movement-based. So it's not like it has to be uh, you know, pressure passing that you uh, resort to as a as an older grappler, but you just need to be aware of the fact that you need to put yourself in positions where you are not super vulnerable to guard offense and don't have to rely on uh, as much athleticism, as much timing, as much uh, uh, flexibility, certainly, to get yourself out of precarious positions that the guard player could put you in. So just knowing what the the fundamental battles actually are in our sport is a really good way of getting to an 80-20 analysis. So just understanding what passing actually is versus what a lot of people think passing is, understanding what guard play actually is versus what a lot of people think it is. So in, in the guard play or the guard player or the guard volume, we talk a lot about understanding the distinction between recumbent guard or seated guard, understanding the distinction of, or the advantages and disadvantages of those guards versus standing opponents versus kneeling opponents uh, and the role that uh, grip fighting and kuzushi and frames play in keeping you safe as a guard player versus having to be very flexible and do a lot of guard retention and inverting and, and stuff like that which has its you know has its uses but as you get older you want to do less and less of that so just to pick up a little bit on what rob was talking about and what people might not understand is it's if 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 we're going and I'm an old guy and I give you close guard and I give you a deep collar grip and I let you break my posture down, now I'm going to suffer. Now it, it's not, you know, I've I've lost the engagement phase, right? But it, in most sparring situations, you're not starting fully locked in into a guard. And certainly in competition, you're not starting fully locked in. You don't just wake up one morning and find yourself in somebody's fully applied close guard or wake up one morning and find yourself in a spider lasso guard with your posture completely broken and both arms completely immobilized. So if you can, the battle really is to get to the 
to deny your opponent his grips, to deny your opponent his hooks, and get to one of the core passing positions before he manages to establish one of his guards. And if you're in a good passing position, it's really, really difficult for him to get into a guard. And it's really, really difficult. There's only a couple of ways that he can do it, and you can have pre-programmed responses for those movements that he's going to try and do. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I love how deep you go into, like, just on this, you know, why the CT guard works well and how you can use it for, like, shin control, how you can get the collar drugs, the, the arm drugs. You really go into a great, de- like, amount of detail just in the seat guard. Never mind going into their accumbent guards um, when breaking the closed guard, etc. But something I did notice with a lot of the older athletes I've competed against, they have a tendency to kind of sl- slot into half guard. You know, it's like once they get the grips, they grab the leg and they hold on and they wait for their moment to try and break through. Do we get to a point now where older athletes think, oh, we can't keep up, so we just need to hold on for dear life and try to find that moment? How do you break that mentality that, you know, being over 40 doesn't mean you're fucked? You can actually use it as a, oh, great, I can evolve my, my gameplay from now. Well, that, I, I think that's actually not only a um, a paradigm that needs to be broken for older grapplers. I, I actually think that's a paradigm that needs to be broken for a lot of beginners. We, for instance, uh, I don't know if we discussed this in our previous interview, but in my academy, I don't allow my white belts to use the closed guard. Mm-hmm. So you're you're just you're forbidden from crossing your ankles and immobilizing the other person because I just find that beginners tend to default to. The, the security blanket uh, effect that comes from latching onto someone and trying to keep them from moving. Uh, and, and I mean, there's certainly like, we do spend some time in the instructional talking about how we want to reduce our partner's mobility. Uh, but we also want to maintain our own mobility. We want to be able to move and we want to prevent the other person from moving. So I think that's just an overall approach to uh, jujitsu, which is like jujitsu. This is a quote from Ryan Hall. Jujitsu isn't moves, it's movement. And so we want to teach people correct movement. We want to teach people how to utilize you know, their body in a safe manner, given that they are now going to be a little bit older and a little bit more prone to injury and have certain um, movement limitations, but we still want them to move their bodies. Uh, and we more advocate the idea of learning how to tie your opponent up, limit their mobility, rather than just you know hang on for dear life and just sort of hope the other person makes a mistake. And I find that that's a... A bit of a cliche, and I think you're right, with a lot of older grapplers, it's just go to half guard, latch on to the other person's legs, and just kind of hope that they don't know how to solve that. Uh, and I don't think that's a great strategy. Uh, I think the appropriate strategy is to learn how to win the grip fight, to learn how to create proper kazushi, maintain good frames, and then you can move yourself into advantageous angles uh, and exploit whatever form of guard you're capable of bl- playing given your, the limitations of your body. Another thing to consider here is that half guard is a great guard, especially if you have limited uh, hip mobility, right? If you can't bring both of your elbows into your own armpits, you're not going to be playing fancy open guard anymore. But it does, depending on how, and there are many different styles of half guard, but many of those styles of half guard mean that your neck is going to take just a beating, right? The guy's going to be pushing it down as as he's fighting for his underhook, or you're going to be fighting your way out of uh, Darce chokes and bravo chokes and and so if, if you're playing the wrong kind of half guard 
and many older grapplers do have dodgy necks as the the intervertebral space decreases and the discs get a little bit more cranky as you get older. Uh, you you do want to avoid just having your head and neck beat on when you're playing half guard. You want, to, for example, like a a shin shield or what Rob calls a, a shell half guard is much much safer than just like lying on the ground and trying to uh, entangle the guy's legs while fishing for a shitty underhook flat on your back. Yeah, and that's a, again a type of half guard like. Uh, I said it's it's based on a certain understanding of frames and kazushi and grip finding and mobility. It's not based on latching onto the other person, um, and so that that's more what we advocate. Although we do involve the the underhook half guard, I think the underhook half guard is a great half guard. It's just like so many things in in jujitsu, it's it's misunderstood by I think a, a decent majority of you know regular practitioners. Uh, certainly. No one who competes at a high level with an underhook half guard misunderstands how to apply underhooks. But I think there are a lot of you know day-to-day practitioners, hobbyists, whatever you want to call them, that might play that kind of latchy underhook half guard and have no idea how to actually do it in a, a manner that allows them to stay safe. Like like Stefan said, the the amount of damage that your neck is going to endure when you play a shitty underhook half guard is uh, it's so significant that it's really it's not worth the trade off for limiting your opponent's mobility. It's just absolutely going to cost you more than it's worth. Because when I was asking some of my like, uh, mates at the gym, and I was like, well, what else do you think an older grappler does? And you know, they were like, they have, they're always on the bottom. You know, they're always the bottom player. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could see why people think that. You know, it's always the young guy on top trying to smash into them and take, you know, hit them hard. And, that. and I love how you go into the concept in this. You don't, you know, you don't show... Oh, well, if their like legs can bend up here, that's fine. But you know they they can't hold off somebody at this point. So you go into about you know, working the distance, getting your grips, but also using things like leverage, um, alignment, posture, and you really break it down into how to attack these things. How what's the main concepts that somebody starting out in jujitsu or an older athlete needs to understand? Because you say that leverage to manipulate your opponent is one of the most important things. How do we use that for the highest return? Well, I, I think that's, you know, again, so much of this stuff, as much as we are targeting it towards older athletes uh, with the, the specific movements that we are advocating, like, you know, we, we advocate certain guards, certain passing styles uh, to compensate for a, a decrease in mobility and an increase in uh, being injury prone and a general decrease in fitness. Uh, so in terms of the actual techniques, those are more catered uh, to people who might be a little bit older. But in terms of the overall approach, the the conceptual approach, I, I think that that is completely universal. That's not something that we've slotted in as a, you know, these are concepts for older athletes. These are just the concepts of jujitsu, which is understanding that uh, jujitsu is essentially physics and body mechanics. Uh, it's understanding that there's a certain way that human bodies generate force optimally and understanding that there are ways of uh, maximizing that for ourselves and reducing that optimal force production for an opponent. So things like understanding what base actually is, having a, a really specific definition for it, what posture actually is, having a specific definition for it, what structure actually is, having a definition for it, understanding things like 
momentum and center of gravity and how to control them, understanding the importance of distance management, both through hand fighting, uh, grip fighting, frames, uh, understanding that you have to off balance an opponent, which is a way of affecting their alignment. Uh, if you don't understand those things, it doesn't matter if you're young and strong, you're still not going to be that good at jujitsu. You, you might be able to get away with certain things with a, an abundance of athleticism, but ultimately you're still going to uh, fail at the, at the higher levels. So the, the, the concepts that we talk about are just universal concepts of jujitsu, uh, utilizing levers to control somebody because there's a mechanical advantage to using a lever versus direct application of force, using frames to keep weight off of us, using frames and wedges to affix somebody in place because those are more robust than trying to just, you know, hold them down or, you know, pin them with, uh, with just weight. Uh, those basic concepts that everybody to some degree talks about them in jujitsu. It's just how accurately they're able to convey them and how effectively they're able to convey them is going to determine whether a student uh, really takes those on um, or just kind of muddles around and tries to just learn a bunch of techniques. Yeah, a younger person has a wider array of techniques that they can get away with because especially as, I mean, some techniques require more physical attributes than others. I think that's undeniable. I mean, the, the classic whipping boy that we always use is rubber guard. Rubber guard requires really high levels of flexibility. But say, um, you know, starting on your butt and then jumping up into a double leg from there when, you're, when your opponent isn't paying attention, that also requires a fair bit of athleticism, not flexibility in that case, but explosiveness and, uh, and strength. So it's not that older athletes are using different techniques. They're using a smaller subset of techniques. You can, as you're younger, you can, you can use more physical attributes and you can kind of game some of that a little bit, uh, and you can use those physical attributes to compensate for your lack of understanding of things like, you know, leverage, base, posture, structure. And uh, as you get older, your your technique, your technical repertoire is going to become smaller, and and that's just a normal way of that's just a normal way of the, the sport evolves within the person. Because that's when I when I, when I first started, I was shown all these amazing techniques, you know, about like um, basically almost like cartwheeling over people and doing all these amazing tricks and submissions. And I thought, but that's fine. But how do you even get to that point if you're constantly getting your guard pass, if you're constantly getting beaten up? And I love how you go into about the frames, the use of overlapping frames. Are the frames a sort of key concept that as you sort of age, you should really focus on? You know, should we start from the defensive mindset so that that's solid, so that when we do then start looking at the stand-up stuff, is that why you kind of focused on the guard to begin with? Yeah, and and again, this is not something that I think is unique to older athletes. I think the the, the philosophy of starting out with the guard and being able to be fundamentally sound within the the confines of your guard, knowing that you're not just going to get your guard passed all over the place. I think that's really where everyone should start. I think beginners should be able to develop a an understanding of the guard that allows for enough confidence that you can then develop offense from. Like I think that the guard is 
frankly taught backwards at most academies, which is, you know, here's the guard, here's the closed guard, here's how to do an arm bar, here's how to do a triangle. Now go ahead and try that. And by the way, it's your first week and you have no idea how to do guard retention. You have no idea how to do proper framing. And so you throw up these offensive movements and then you just live at the bottom of side control for your first six months of jujitsu. Uh, which, I mean, one is, I think, part of the reason why you have the attrition rate that you have is it's just, it's taught incorrectly. Uh, but two, I, I just, I think it's, it's uh, in terms of developing offensive capacity, if you are confident enough in knowing why you need to have frames, then you can start to judge accurately when you can decide to attack because you're attacking from a, a solidly fortified position. And we, we can talk about that in terms of the guard. We can also talk about it in terms of um, uh, top game. But I think that as long as you have a, again, just a fundamental understanding of when are you vulnerable? And that comes from getting pretty you know, conversant with the idea of base posture and structure, frames and levers, momentum and center of gravity, just knowing when you are in a position where you can be attacked and knowing when you are not in a position where you can be attacked. And that's, that's agnostic, whether it's top or bottom, but I think it's just, it's easier to start out with that uh, from the bottom because frankly, just from a, a purely, you know, arcane physics sort of perspective, um, you know, uh, matter seeks to occupy the lowest energy state. So it's just easier for people to learn this shit when they're lying down than it is to teach it to them when they're standing up because then uh, proprioception and balance become more of a factor, which is why, you know, again, I, I don't think that people that are total beginners should start by learning takedowns because you're just going to increase the rate of injury and it's, it's, it's just harder for people to get to. So I think, you, you know, you, you start fundamentally with guard play, uh, and then you you teach people a balance through the dealing with sweeps, and then once they have a bit of balance, then you can start to teach them uh, you know more and more top game. So you have a lot of um, sort of older athletes coming into you know jujitsu since it became cool, but when you go in, you know you see these guys with six packs and they're doing like. Um, walking on their hands and stuff like that. When I when I started, I could barely get my feet over my head because I was a heavy power lifter, and I was like out of breath just doing the warm up. How would you start a training plan for an older athlete who's coming into this completely new? You know, is it a sort of seventy five percent of true effort a good sort of area to look for in the majority of your training? How do we know when to mix it up, when to push it heavy? How you know be receptive to our bodies? How would you build a training plan for somebody new who's maybe on the wrong side of 40, like I'm going to be? How do we start planning this so we don't just blow ourselves out after a week's training? I think a lot would depend on the starting point, both psychologically and physically. If you you get to know somebody pretty quickly, and are they somebody who's innately maybe a little bit more hesitant and a little bit more cautious? Or is this one of the, you know, hey, I, I played foot, you know, I peaked in high school. And I remember my glory days, and I'm going to go full balls to the wall. Al Bundy style. Yeah, you, you need uh, two different. Uh, you know, those are two different starting points. As well, now it's. I mean, I remember in my my dad's era, when you reached forty, you were done. The number of people, like even jogging in their forties, was minuscule. 
now you've got such a wide variety of people, from people who've never exercised before, from people who are losing a lot of weight, to people who uh, have a wide athletic background, and to people who have a wide athletic background, maybe they're coming off of CrossFit, but they also have a whole lot more injuries. So I, I think you well, really definitely have to if they're coming from CrossFit, they're going to have a lot of injuries. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that does go with that. They've gotten a little bit better, Rob. I, 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 CrossFit used to be my whipping boy. I will think that they've realized that customer retention is key, and they've gotten a bit better at the last five years of uh, minimizing injuries or trying to reduce injuries. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take that for granted. I, I haven't looked in on the CrossFit people since I, since I had a buddy who broke his leg during his CrossFit certification, and they still certified him. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> well, if you get – you don't pass unless you get rhabdomyolysis. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that might have been a dated reference, and maybe I'm being too glib. So, I, my, my point with CrossFit was always every single guy I knew who did CrossFit – had his wrist hyperextended and that was from doing shitty cleans because for a while they were all doing cleans without knowing how to do cleans and they're basically like lifting up you know, two plates aside 225 pounds and just bouncing it off this one of the smaller joints in the body and uh i i think that's over i've been told that's over by very defensive crossfit people when i've made fun of them <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that as far as the training plan stuff goes, uh, that's a really good point about the like the individual mentality. I would say, you know, if I want to slightly generalize, somebody over the age of forty is probably a little bit more likely to have a um, let's say detrimentally macho attitude towards training. Um, I know certainly I'm of the generation where, uh, having done a lot of MMA training in my twenties the expectation was just that you were going to spar full speed every time you sparred and a pretty similar attitude in, in jujitsu. It's just every roll was, you just rolled as hard as you could. Um, and I think there's a lot of ignorance that comes with that mentality, whether it's when it comes to athletics or whether it comes to just, you know, general stuff in life. Uh, that causes uh, you know, a, a lot of problems, both for the individual and society at large. Uh, so I, I think that if you're going to come into it with a, that attitude as an older athlete, you're not going to survive because you can't begin a sport with a deficit of knowledge and possibly a deficit of fitness and go that hard against people who are better than you, like skill-wise and, and, and certainly fitter and stronger than you for the most part. You, you can't do that for very long without getting pretty horribly injured uh, and you're just going to quit. So that's a, just a, a reality check that you're going to have to accept if you're going to do jiu-jitsu, if you're in your 40s, uh, if you're going to train. You know, like we've got people at our academy that are in their 60s and 70s and they're, they're great. I don't actually have to give them that kind of like reality check. They, they, they know where they're at, but they're also you know, fairly fit. They're, they're there to learn. They're there for the right things. Um, you know, occasionally you need to give them the same sort of advice that you give any beginner, which is, Hey buddy, let go of that headlock. That person's about to take your back. But you know, other than that, I, I think they're great to work with, but I think by and large that, that initial sort of gut check that, Hey, being super aggressive is actually not going to get you anywhere here. This is practice. And we have a, 
you know, as a as an old guy, as a bunch of old guys, you know, we're probably not that into, um, you know, memes or references. But there's a great um, YouTube clip that you can find of a guy named Allen Iverson, who's a very well-known basketball player, and he's given a, a question by a reporter about practice, and his response is, "We talk about practice here, not the game. We talk about practice." So a lot of younger people will know the, the reference of "We talking about practice." So whenever somebody gets a little bit too aggro at the gym. That's the the reference that I give them, and we just kind of make fun of them. Like, hey, buddy, we talking about practice here. Like, why are you going one hundred and ten percent? We're not fighting each other. We're fighting injuries. So, calm the fuck down. Recognize that you are here to learn, and if you break your toys, you can't play with them. And your bodies and your training partner's bodies are the toys that are involved. So, there's absolutely no benefit to somebody having that attitude. Uh, and that's something we just inculcate into our students, regardless of age. But it's far more relevant to older athletes. I, I think what we might want to talk about is the assumptions that Rob and I made while making BGJ for old fucks. First, the first series on playing from the guard, and the secondly, the guard passing series, which will hopefully come out in a couple of weeks, mid-September, uh, twenty twenty-two, for the people listening in the future. And that is, of course, there are. Of course there are exceptions. Of course you're going to find the 50-year-old who's been doing yoga every day and is incredibly flexible. And of course you're going to find you know, the 55-year-old who's running ultras and endurance is not a problem. But the assumptions that we made is that most people as they get older are going to be getting, going to heal from injuries slower. They're going to heal from training slower. So their recovery uh, is going to be reduced. They might be a little bit more overweight than they were when they were young. They might be a bit less flexible or quite a bit less flexible than they were when they were young. Uh, they, what are the other assumptions we made, Rob? Flexibility, um, less strong uh, than less they were. Less strong, yeah, less cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that I think on average, if you take a wide enough view, that's probably true of 80% of the people who are over 40. They're not, they don't have as good endurance as they did when they were young. They're not as strong as they were when they were young. They're not as flexible. I mean, certainly, like I said, you know, my game as my hips have started giving me trouble in the last 10 years, you know, my days of rubber guard, <laughs> well, my days of rubber guard ended when uh, I tore my LCL uh, in my late 20s, early 30s. Uh, but my days of anything resembling rubber guard are, are definitely done. Yeah. And I think one, one concept that, and I don't know if we actually spent a ton of time talking about it in, in the instructional, although I, I do think we touched on it is the idea of, and this is again, this is a, a concept that's important overall in jujitsu, but just becomes much more relevant as you get older is the idea of um, redundancy. Uh, there are a lot of things that can work, Given, you know, like Stefan mentioned the idea of outliers. So like, yeah, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm 46. I'm still fairly flexible. Like I have good hamstring flexibility. My hip flexibility was never great for a jujitsu guy. I could never do the lotus position, but I couldn't do it in my 20s. So it's, that's not something that's gotten, you know, markedly worse as I've aged. Um, but like, I, you know, I'm fairly fit. I've got good cardiovascular fitness for certainly for somebody my age. I've got low body fat, all that kind of stuff. So I am a bit of an outlier. And I mean, I do this for a living. Um, so, you know, and, and I've got a, a decently high skill level. So there are certain things that I can 
for lack of a better term, get away with. Uh, but for the, example, Rob uses inversions a fair bit. I use inversions a tiny bit, but it's it's really it's getting to the limit of my spinal flexibility to invert. I, I can still do it as long as there's no weight on me. Rob, you have no problems with that at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I can invert basically like I'm 21. I have, I've, I can be in a fully stacked position. Uh, my feet will go right to the floor. I, yeah, uh, I would be very popular at the orgies. So the, the, um, the, 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 in that sense, I am an outlier. But what I don't do is utilize that when I'm trying to, let's say, you know, compete or if I'm rolling with somebody who's quite high level, I don't take advantage of my flexibility because I know that anyone that's quite skillful, especially if they're a little bit bigger than me, they're, they're going to start to take uh, advantage of any little bit of ground that I give them. So if I abuse flexibility, if I abuse any attributes, they're going to make me pay for it. And there are certain techniques that are like that. They're like, you can get away with them sometimes if you're very quick or if you're, uh, you know, there are certain approaches like we talked about half guard. If you have really good guillotine and darts defense, you can get away with putting yourself into certain positions. But the idea is as a, you know, if you want to be a technically sound grappler, you want to have as much redundancy to your game as possible. So you, you don't play low percentage stuff. You don't play high risk stuff. You don't give people access to certain positions. And you, again, there are athletes out there that will succeed while doing that. But overall, most of us, regardless of our age, are better off playing within certain parameters where if something we do doesn't work, we're not insta-fucked. If a, a an attempt at a technique, you know, I, I have a saying, I don't know where I got it from, but it's uh, you judge a technique not by how well it works when it works. You judge a technique by how well it works when it fails. You know, so if, if I try something and it doesn't work out quite how I want it to, and I'm insta-fucked, that's not a good technique. It's not a good strategy. It's not a good approach for somebody who wants to uh, have good longevity, whether it's as a competitor in terms of like higher level competition success or as a, as a practitioner, as you age, you don't want to put yourself in positions that are uh, dangerous where, yeah, but you could succeed, but if you fail, it's spectacular. So th- that's a kind of an approach that I think is really important yeah. to mention. So if you throw your old ass into a cartwheel guard pass to choose something that you referred to earlier, <laughs> I mean, yeah, if it works, you're the king. If it fails, uh, you're going to go home in a cast. And uh, we'll see in six months when that uh, shoulder, well, when that leg heals up. But uh, a more simple example that Rob likes to harp on, and I, I'm beginning to agree with him, is something like the armbar from guard, especially if you're not really good at it. I mean, what happens if if I... If it, what happens when a new guy tries to armbar you from guard? What do you, what do you, what ends up happening? You end up smashing them. You end up like uh, uh, triangling your arms. You end up crushing them, baking them, and they've essentially given you a pressure pass, a pressure stack pass. Hmm. That's one thing when you're 18 years old, even 25 years old, even 30 years old. That starts being a whole different kettle of fish when you're, you know, 40, 45, 50, 55, to inadvertently spend time, quality time in a stack pass with your opponent putting all his weight down on you. Uh, the, the, the cost of failure for that maneuver, if you don't know, if you're not very comfortable with 
you know, the, the counters and the recounters and the initial off balancing is pretty high. It's pretty high cost. It's pretty high cost of failure. Yeah. So, so that's an example of what is, you know, one of the holy grail techniques of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? Like the armbar from the guard is one of the first things you will generally learn. And we kind of, you know, sort of slaughter that sacred cow and, and a few other sacred cows in the instructional in advocating for this approach of like, you know, redundancy first, layers of defense first, safety first, keep your neck safe, keep your hips safe. Don't put yourself in a position where somebody can do this to you. And then once you're able to do that, by all means, do the armbar from the guard. It's just, we think that the approach that most people have taken to learning it is pretty ass backwards. So with this sort of lean more into, like you were saying earlier, about like the smaller subsets of jiu-jitsu, you know, cutting out all the fancy, twisty, flippy shit, you know, just using the sort of what you can do, like what your physical characteristics will allow. Because when I need chains and, and combinations of moves, like I, I get taught something like uh, a simple guard pass, but I want to know how do I then move into uh, a submission from there? Because a younger guy can maybe hold you down while they're trying to think of the next move. But I find I'm not seeing, you know, my timing goes off. My my brain's maybe not as sharp as it used to be. So I kind of go, shit, what am I doing here? And like you're saying, you get suddenly the failure at that point means you can get flung on your back, swept. So you might have done some amazing pass and then go, ah, oh, bollocks, I'm in a worse situation than I was. Are combinations and chains of attacks really good for... Um, an older athlete or a new athlete to kind of start building into the repertoire so it becomes almost automatic. And is this the like situational sparring a, a good idea or should we drill these super slow till we can get them inch perfect? I think that uh, the combinations of movements are fantastic. Uh, provided you're realistic about them. So I think, you know, we, we live in an age of Instagram moves where people are connecting 20 hit combos on a, on mm -hmm. a, on a dummy partner. Uh, so, you know, when I say combinations, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we want to uh, connect sequences. I don't think that beginners really need to concern themselves with that. And I mean, when I say beginners, I mean like, you know, less than six months of training. I don't think you need to con concern yourself too much with uh, extensive combinations. Um, I think it's more, uh, you know, as, as we discussed kind of like, uh, you know, the, the base passing positions or the, the, uh, having a robust guard where you're limiting your opponent's options, uh, and, and you've got some pre-programmed responses, uh, and that kind of stuff is really important. But to, to touch on your point of, uh, situational sparring, I do think that that's actually very important to do, whether it's situational sparring the way most people do it we advocate a very uh, sort of proprietary type of uh, situational sparring that we call fuck your jiu-jitsu where, where we work on developing certain skill sets and and that's the thing that i think is actually more important than combinations or sequences it's just more having skill sets so like the you know the the skill set of um acquiring an underhook and 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 fighting from the underhook position you don't want to necessarily think of that as a sequence where you're going, I'm going to do A, B, C, D. It's more just you're, you're good in that position. And so that, that's where situational sparring is really important. And drilling till it's letter perfect, I don't think is productive uh, in terms of, you know, especially you know, depending on how much time you've got, 
you, you could do that, but I think for most of us, getting to the point where a, a movement is perfect is is unnecessary. And not only that, I, I think the concept is a little bit wacky in the sense of like, what makes a movement perfect is the fact that you can do it against resisting opponents. You know, doing a movement perfectly in the absence of a uh, level of informed resistance is just, uh, uh, you know, th- then we're just talking about kata, right? So it's your ability to adjust to what your opponent is doing, which is what the situational sparring gives you is what makes the, the movement actually valid. So I think as early as possible, um, which is to say, you know, like in our beginner, in our 101 classes at my academy, when you learn a movement, you learn the, the essential concept of the movement, you learn the basic movement pattern, and then you're situational sparring it with graduated levels of informed resistance throughout the, the lesson. And then the lesson concludes with some fuck your jujitsu rounds. Uh, so like we, we build a huge amount of um, situational sparring into our lessons. I, I think that's the most important thing for, for developing skills quickly is just doing a lot of work within the position where somebody's resisting you. Which is a very different format from, okay, jumping jacks, shrimping up and down the mat. Okay, here are your two techniques, now spar. Which is, okay. yeah, which, which is frankly like that, that approach is just garbage. You know, it, it's the, and I know that there are a lot of schools out there that still use it. Uh, although I think that number is decreasing significantly uh, more recently than it would. You know, I would say in the past that would have been ninety-five percent of schools. You know, now it might be sixty or seventy percent of schools. But I still still think a lot of schools use that class format, and it's literally the worst way to do things. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Because that's something I started with. When I first started, it was like, you know, going and then it was, we're going to do this, this and this. And it was all like 10% resistance from an opponent. And then it was like, okay, now we're going to spar. And then everybody went balls to the wall. People were spazzing out. People were doing all sorts of insane things. And you're like, I don't even know what they're doing there. But then because you're new, you defend in like maybe a street fighting way or you defend maybe in a like grab and hold while somebody's trying to do a fancy flip and you end up catching them and hurting their arm or something. You know, and it's, it was weird because it's only this new gym I've been at where they've actually taught you how to spar like properly but how to build into it. One of my training partners has said to me like that I he notices I actually give too much credit to the opponent. I always give them far too much credit in the terms of I don't move in certain ways because I'm always expecting to be flipped. I'm always expecting them to turn me over or they're luring me into a false sense of security if I'm thinking I'm doing well and passing or whatever. How do you start breaking into that mindset and making people realise, forget what they're doing, and, you know, this is the learning experience, but to actually focus on yourself and not worry so much 
or you know, looks like it's like an imposter syndrome, and you're you're getting screwed if you know what I mean. Well, that's funny. I remember sparring. Uh, I, w- I was the first jujitsu guy in my fire department. I was the first guy who did thought that this male pajama wrestling was uh, was a good idea. And I remember a bunch of the uh, older guys wanted to take a run at me. They'd wrestled in their youth, or they'd played rugby. And I remember this guy in my closed guard lying there with his forearm across my throat and me thinking, oh, I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to bait me into an armbar attempt, at which point he's going to rip the arm out and pass my guard. And then I'm like, no, no, he's an idiot. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> he, this seems like a good idea. And it just in slow motion, I swung into the armbar and I finished him. So yeah, certainly giving your opponent too much credit can be detrimental, but I think that's a, a learning phase where everybody who's been caught in a couple of you know traps uh, goes through. I mean, the classic example there is sort of spider guard. Oh, look, the guy only has you know a lasso hook on my right arm, and he's giving me the pass to the to the left, or he only has his foot on my bicep, and you know you try passing to the left, and next thing you know, you're launched out of space. I, I think that's just a normal part of learning, giving your opponent too much credit. And yeah, I think that the, the important takeaway from uh, from what Stefan said there is just assume that your opponent is an idiot, and that will <laughs> largely solve the problem. Uh, and I mean, let's face it, most people in jiu-jitsu are kind of idiots. Uh, so yeah, it's I, I think that um, that part of that reason people um, adopt this uh, approach is because of the fear of losing. Uh, and I think the more that you, and I guess a lot of work that we do on gamifying jujitsu so that we, you don't worry so much about the wins and losses. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the notion of giving your opponent so much credit d- doesn't have as much um, validity if you just assume that you want to experience as much jujitsu in a round as possible. And that is the purpose of a round. Whereas if you assume that you want, your opponent to get away with as little jujitsu as possible, then giving them credit makes sense. And then you stop moving. And, and I think that's, you know, obviously extremely counterproductive. Um, the, the way to get good at anything is to experience as much of it as possible under the right conditions. Um, and frankly, failure and problem solving is how we get good at things. So, Assuming that you don't want your opponent to get a chance to try a movement uh, and that's your attitude towards a role is frankly a terrible way of getting good at jujitsu. Um, and I, I have this conversation with students quite a bit uh, because the it, it's funny, the, the guys that are in the middle, they don't really worry about rolling with me. Um, and the guys that are to, you know closer to my skill level they don't worry about rolling with me at all. Uh, it's the white belts that freak the fuck out and are super worried to make any move when uh, they're rolling with me because like, oh, you're a black belt. You're going to do whatever you want. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm going to do whatever I want regardless of what you do. So you can either play with me and we can find out what's going to happen when you make certain moves and when I decide to make certain moves or you can literally run from me anytime I touch you. Uh, and that has happened. I mean, there, there are people who go to roll with me and when I go to make the slightest grip on them, they literally flee, like they turn and run. And I just ask them like, Hey man, 
do you want to get anything out of this round? Or do you want to just like be able to say that I didn't tap you? Uh, and those are the students that frankly take the longest to develop any skill whatsoever because they're viewing every exchange as a, as a, as a battle. And because they can't win the battle with a more experienced practitioner, they then choose to run away from the battle. The only way you can get good is by having the battle, losing it, figuring out why you lost it, and then having the battle again, over and over again. You're supposed to lose at the beginning. Get the fuck over it. That, that's literally all I can tell them. No, I love yeah. that. If you weren't supposed to lose, then why are you studying in the first place? If your odds of winning and losing were the same regardless of <laughs> your skill level, then, uh, then clearly what you're learning is of no help. Because I, I don't know if you've seen that picture on Instagram recently with the guy holding up the sign saying, stop trying to win at practice. You know, you're not there to win or lose. And I had to learn that the hard way. When I first started, every night I was, it wasn't so much wanting to win. It was more than avoiding getting tapped by people who were lower belts to me or like silly things. You know, like if I got tapped, I would I'd be annoyed about it the whole weekend. Like, I was wasting my life just caring about stupid things like that. My ego was just so big, and that's where I kind of struggled. I moved the other way. I became so preemptive of worrying about what other people were doing and, you know, stressing about it. So I think I've kind of gone too far this other way now. Now, what about rolling for an older athlete or somebody who's coming into the new? You know, do you pick and choose the people you roll with? Would you advise older athletes? To sit out every so often? 100% to both of those. And it's also the coach's responsibility to make sure that, especially the new guy, by the time you've been training at a club for a while, you know who the let's go light and then until I get into a good position, then I'm going to try and rip your head off guy is. Oh, yes. Uh, But at the beginning, you don't. And at the beginning, you're not sure if it's uh, a good idea or not. And many of the clubs that I trained at and remember i came up the pretty old school system you know it, there was not much curating of you roll with who you roll with this guy you roll with that guy there wasn't much pre-warning like hey you should not be rolling with biff biff always you know <laughs> biff always goes hard he's congenitally designed to go hard uh, i mean there's a whole separate argument to be had whether or not biff should be at the school or not but that's that's a We'll have a different conversation another day about kicking out problem students. Uh, but yeah, I, I think also as an older athlete, just to link it back to our previous conversation, tapping out is your friend, right? Tapping out, uh, I tap out fairly frequently, and it doesn't mean that I'm caught in a submission. Like I, when I'm rolling with somebody new, I'll often say, or haven't rolled with a guy in a while, I'll say, hey, listen, just so you know, my, I don't know, my shoulder is bugging me. If I tap out for no reason in the middle of a roll, it means let go of what you're doing. You know, my shoulder is feeling compromised and I, I just, I don't want to blow it out, not in a submission, but you know, like you're holding your leg and you're rolling and it's kind of getting twisted a bit. Tap, tap. I, if I'm trying to protect that body part. So tapping means, yeah, you caught me in a submission, but tapping also means I'm feeling uncomfortable here. I think I might get injured. Yeah, this is actually a really good point. Uh, I'm, I'm glad it got brought up because we did. We've talked about this on another podcast where 
the primary understanding that practitioners receive about tapping is that it is a signal of surrender or yielding to a submission. Whereas what it should be is a signal that you are not sure that you're safe. And especially as a beginner, until you know your body and how it responds to certain things, uh, there are going to be circumstances where you are unsafe that have nothing to do with submissions. And it leads to a very detrimental mentality to uh, only view the tap as being equal to you got me, I'm about to have my arm broken, I therefore need to tap, therefore it's a sign of surrender. It's not a sign of surrender, it's a signal to your partner that you're not sure that you're safe. And as a beginner, if you're unsure, you tap for any reason. You know, Stefan's bringing up a really good example of even as a advanced practitioner, you're tapping not to a submission, but to, oh, I don't know if my shoulder is going to be okay there. Let's let, I'm just going to tap preemptively and let's just reset and start again. And so there are there is no end to the number of like valid things that you can tap to because that all it is is a signal to your partner that I, I need to stop right now. So like if you've got explosive diarrhea and your partner puts you in <laughs> neon belly, you tap because you need time to run to the bathroom. Like we all need to get over the idea of what tapping means. You know, tapping can mean I don't want to shit my pants. It doesn't have to be I'm in an armbar. Like the fecal jab, Jackson Pollock kind of style. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the visual there. Appreciate it. Uh, one of the best things I ever heard uh, about training as an older grappler came from Rabbi Mordecai, uh, uh, fin- uh, Mordecai Finley, who's a teacher who trains and out of uh, Los Angeles. And he said his goal of training, the primary goal of each class is to come back to the next class. So he got his black belt, I think at age 60. And if you think of that, my, my goal today, yeah, sure, I want to work on my guard passing. That's my kind of jiu-jitsu goal, but there's a goal that's higher than that. And my goal is to come back to training tomorrow. Uh, yes, of course, there are times that you have to push it harder. And when we push things harder, say getting ready for a competition or, or whatever, you are accepting a higher chance of injury. But Rob said it earlier, we're fighting injury. And injury is the enemy, and it's even more of an enemy as you get older. You thought injuries were bad as a, as a young guy because you would miss that next tournament, or you might have to take two months off. Well, the same injury when you're 50 years old, it's not two months. It's four months. And it's a missed, it's, you're going to be freaking out about meeting your mortgage payments because you, you know, whatever it is that if your wrist is broken, how are you going to type fast enough to, to generate that report to get paid? to pay your mortgage. So the the goal, the, the most important goal of training is to come back the next day. I'd say the second most important goal is to make sure that your training partner comes back the next day. And then it's to learn something in that order. Yeah, that's a, our, our, our rolling at my academy starts with the announcement. You know, the number one rule in here is keep yourself and your training partner safe. And then the other, the next one is learn as much as possible. That's exactly how we phrase it. And winning is not on the list. Oh, I love that. I love these kind of ideas because I was ruled by my ego when I started. Like I was such a like so juvenile about how I looked at it. You know, it was a competition. It was a blight on masculinity to type to tap. And now looking back, it's embarrassing because we're all there to learn. But I was thinking 
people will be laughing and joking about me tapping and most people are fine. You just go, how did you catch me? Fine, you learn from it. But when I first started, when I came from somewhere, you know, like playing football regularly and that, so you had this like really dynamic warm up and you had cool downs and stuff. I started at Gracie Baja and it was like jumping jacks, a wee bit of stretching where they didn't even show you or check you were doing it correctly. Suddenly you were going into an insane two hours workout because I did both of the classes. And the cool down was just BS, basically. As you age, what have you found you need as a decent warm-up, as a decent cool down? And how do you sort of evaluate your training sessions after? You know, do you journal? Do you write out notes on them? Is there, how do you get mentally and physically prepared for your training and to cool down from them? Well, but I'll, I'll, I'll maybe let Stefan grab that one in a second, but I, I did want to touch on, you, you mentioned coming from other sports, and I actually think that this is something that bears mentioning. The, one of the biggest differences between jiu-jitsu and some of the other sports that people play as hobbies, and I think this is partially why there is such a, um, just a detrimental attitude towards how people roll uh, is that in almost every other sport that you play, you play the actual sport. Whereas in jiu-jitsu, uh, I'd say the majority of practitioners don't ever play the actual sport. They only attend the practices, right? It's rare that people who play tennis or play hockey or whatever don't go and play games. They just go to like hockey practice or they just practice their serve or whatever, but in jiu-jitsu, people go to jiu-jitsu practice and then proceed to never, ever compete in the sport. And so what that ends up creating is a, a whole bunch of people for whom the practice is the game, which is why they're so insistent on winning. They think that roles in practice are a competition because they make it one. And so I think if people in general just competed more often and stopped trying to make it such a big deal uh, about competing and just looked at it as they do any other sport where like we do this so that we can play the games. I think a lot of that would, would change. That's an awesome way. I never thought about it like that, but that's so true. And it's, yeah, it's one of the only other sports where if you don't compete, you're not really using jujitsu. You're just learning the repetition. of it. I never thought of it like that. I love that. That's going to be one of the key takeaways from this. So what lifestyle changes would you get for people? You know, like, because I know people who say basically that they pop some, like, Advil and then they go before they go to training because they're sore. Like, you know, how do you make sure you're getting the right sleep, the right warm-up, the right cool-down, the right food, the right diet? You know, how much more do you pay attention to, like, blackout curtains, eye masks for sleeping, taking supplements for your body, physio massages, how, how do you start leveling up your care as an older athlete? I think a lot of that comes naturally. If you really love, I mean, some people are willing to do things for their health because of their health. Some people are capable of looking forward and going, you know what, 20 years from now, I, it would really suck to have a big uh, heart attack or a big stroke. So I'm going to clean up my diet now. But a lot of people will only do it for sort of proximal reasons. Like, you know, I would like to be able to hold my own against Jim Bob. And what do I need to do to hold my own against Jim Bob? You know, and often those answers are the same. Well, to cut your chance of heart attack, try to get, call it eight hours of sleep, 
eight hours of good quality sleep. Uh, and to beat Jim Bob, probably getting eight hours of sleep is also a good idea. So then you're driven either for like distant, larger reasons or shorter proximal reasons, more short-sighted proximal reasons. But often both of those things will lead you down the same path. Oh, okay, I should try and sleep in a darker room. Oh, okay, I should actually get a sleep tracker. You know, I've been playing with one of these uh, sleep tracker rings. It's, it's pretty interesting. It, it, it correlates reasonably well to how I'm feeling. And it's a, it gives you a nice number, which allows you to gamify something. Like, ha, huh, last night I only got a 72% on my sleep score. But what did I do that one time that I got an 82%? Uh, okay, I'm going to try and do that again. Uh, the nutrition is trickier because there are so many ways to do it right and so many different ways to do it right. Uh, I think you know, Rob and I would probably agree that you know if you eat a lot of vegetables eat clean carbs and eat lean protein that's a pretty good start i mean the same advice i give to my kids i'll give to most people because most people's diet is so incredibly shitty every meal should include a reasonably clean protein so uh, a reasonably clean protein source a reasonably clean carb source and then some kind of fruit or vegetable potatoes are not fruits and vegetables that advice i think would help improve the diet of something like 75% of North America. Um, and if I can go sort of in the other direction, which is I would steer people away from any like extreme fitness influencers. And when I say extreme, I yeah. mean extreme in the opinions. You know, if somebody's telling you that like seed oils are Satan uh, and somebody's telling you that the, you know, the only way to do this is to do this thing that disagrees with the you know, 90% diet. Of, of, what, of what the experts are saying, uh, you know, they, they, they put out an extreme opinion because that's what uh, garners a lot of views. I would say you can safely ignore any one of those people. I, what I was going to say, and Rob said it for me, which is a very kind way of saying you cut me off, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a lot of ways to do it right, but there's some very definite ways to do it wrong. So like fucking junk food. It's called junk. Nobody goes to McDonald's and has the salad. Come on. If you're eating at McDonald's more than once a month, like that's the low-hanging fruit. Clean that shit up. And you know, just the other day, uh, there's now diets that are more like that was uh, Jordan Peterson, who's long been uh, pushing the Speaking all of extremists you should never yeah. listen to about anything. Yeah. Well, it's now more extreme than just the all meat diet. His wife is on the all lamb diet. The only kind of meat that she can eat <laughs> is lamb. Well, thank God there's at least one kind of meat that she can eat. Like I'd, be, I'd hate for her to become allergic to that as well. It's Although like I could hope Jordan Peterson becomes allergic to all kinds of meat all at the same time. <laughs> I'd be willing to accept that. I remember reading about uh, was it people that only ate rabbit, and it was actually to digest it, uh, you needed to use up two chemicals in your body that yeah. could actually cause serious damage to you. So you needed to then go take supplements if if you ate just rabbit the whole time. Yeah, it's um, rabbit starvation. It's happened up north uh, over the like trappers who are eating nothing but rabbit all winter long. I think it's a it's a fatty acid. It's something in the fats that gets depleted in the body, and it's really serious. Uh, here's a giant pile of rabbit. You've got all the calories and protein you need. Yeah, but you're going to die of something else. You just think like with all the the variety stuff, and that's why I, I always hate people that say diets. You know, it's like I can't remember who said it, but he was like, "There's die in the title." 
why starve yourself? Why not eat healthy? And there was that thing about willpower that, you know, you should have a little treat every so often. I think it's every couple of months, every couple of six weeks, just so that you don't burn it out. But what other lifestyle changes do you do you make? Like, do you kind of get guys to go in and compete? Like, would you say once every year, just kind of push themselves? How would they? How should they pick their competitions to to truly get the best from it and truly learn as an older athlete? I'll let well, I think Rob handle actually... the competition question because I thank you. Go ahead. Uh, well, so that's actually a really good point because as an older athlete, it's it's quite difficult to get, depending on where you are. Like, you know, if you're in a major metropolitan area, uh, and when I say major, I mean, you know, like if you're in a city of 10 million, you're probably going to have access to tournaments where the, the turnout is significant enough that you'll have a few people in your bracket uh, if you're a master's athlete. Um, you know, f- uh, and, and again, obviously, the, 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 the lower your rank, the more likely you are to get opponents. So like, there are going to be more white belts than there are blue belts, than there are purple, et cetera, et cetera. So like, for example, for me, uh, I certainly can't compete anywhere near where I live on Vancouver Island. There's just absolutely no uh, options for me. Um, even in Vancouver, which is a, you know, decent sized city, but like if I look at the, the, the brackets at any of the local tournaments, there are almost no like there's a few 30 plus guys that are competing but there are almost no 40 plus guys that are competing so for me to actually have a a bracket that's decent enough size i pretty much have to do master worlds or nogi worlds like i even i did um uh american nationals uh, in july and there were initially four guys in my bracket and it ended up getting down to two guys because a couple of people didn't show up. So, you know, it, it's, it's even at a pretty decent sized tournament, I had struggled to find opponents. So I think that that is frankly a problem and you're basically going to have to get used to the idea of traveling somewhere or, you know, or going to a relatively major event, which means that you're going to be competing against guys who are, probably, you know, fairly well motivated. It, it, it's not too often that somebody's going to get you know, a plane ticket and a hotel and take time off work, et cetera, et cetera, to go just see how it goes at an event. So it, it almost gets into this vicious cycle where unless you're a frequent master's competitor, you're going to be going up against guys who probably take this more seriously than you do. So you kind of have to figure out like, okay, wh- what what division can I go in where I'm going to be going up against people that are going to provide me a good challenge without being so much better than I am? I'd say at the lower belts, you know, if you're, if you're a white belt and you're 35, 40, just do the adult division. It honestly doesn't matter that much. Um, you know, at blue belt, you just you can probably just do the adult division. Just make sure you're in pretty good shape, and you'll be okay. Like you're not gonna win, but unless you get the ringer, you're not gonna get obliterated. Like I've got students who are in their 40s that will do adult divisions, and they'll do fine. If you're at purple belt or up, you're gonna start facing like full time competitors, full time athletes in the purple belt division that are frankly going to be so much better than you 
both in terms of skill level, because just they can train all the time and also just their athleticism will be off the charts, that it's a waste of time to enter an adult division if you're 40 plus. Um, unless you're, again, you're the outlier. You're the guy who's been training for a while. You're very good technically. Like it's, it's possible. But as a general rule, once you get to purple belt and up or advanced divisions in Nogi, if you're 40 plus, you're just going to have to try to find a tournament where there's a master's division that starts at 30 plus and you're going to get funneled into that division. And that's the best you're going to do. You're either not going to have anybody in your bracket 40 plus that's, uh, that's your weight class or anywhere near your weight class. Uh, or you got the adult division guys that are just forget it. So yeah, like get ready to compete against people who are, one age division or two age divisions below you just you know adult is probably a bit tricky and just get ready to be in a mixed division weight class wise so there'll be so few people that if you're a middleweight you're going to compete against middle heavies or if you're a lightweight you're going to compete against middleweights and that sort of thing and just don't worry about that like that that's just something you, you just kind of get over and you know do the best that you can in terms of game plan and preparation but you're basically going to have to deal with more disparity in size and age than you would like to so for those people who are listening going, yeah, I, I, you know, I should be training more, I should be competing, you know, but they're saying, well, I can't do it because I've got kids, I can't do it because I've got the job, you know, and everybody uses these kind of things. And before you know it, you kind of forget that side of you and, you know, you lose your hobbies, you lose your friends, etc. Now, Stefan, you've gone away canoeing on all sorts of places um, you know, Rob, you coach, you you fight your council, <laughs> I've seen you doing recently. Do you think cross-training is a great thing that we should be doing, that we should have everybody should be doing something else, even if it's like walking or cycling? Or does cross-training help? And what other things can older athletes be doing away from the mats that will help them on the mats? Oh, I have a strong opinion about this. Uh, I think everybody regardless of whether they train jiu-jitsu, should be hitting the weights at least once a week once they're age 40 and above. I think your body just begins to fall apart. I, I, maybe the exception here is if you're rock climbing all the time or doing jiu-jitsu all the time, the sport itself provides you with the the resistance. Right? I mean, just trying to pull somebody's arm towards you as they're pulling it away from you. That is a form of a row, for example. Uh, but the less. But I would say, sorry, sorry to cut you off again. I'd say the better you are at that sport, the less that's likely to happen. As a black belt, most of the roles I have, I don't need to exert myself that hard. Sure, uh, if you've if you've got a deep uh, skill bracket at the place that you train, that might become a little bit more common. Would you agree, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, if you're, I mean, if you're at a gym that has a lot of really good guys, then you got a lineup you, of thirty black belts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would say that the, you know, the that's more rare. I don't think that many people have access to that. So yeah, I, I would say, as we gain skill, we need to, again, like regardless of age, I would say we need to start doing supplementary uh, strength and conditioning work. Well, I think you should probably finish this podcast at the end by talking about. Uh, your tripod passing or cardio experience. But I, I'm going to just finish my thought first, which is that I think everybody, regardless of whether they do jujitsu or not, should do resistance training of some type as they get older, 
because it's it's strengthening the ligaments, it's strengthening the tendons, it's densifying, it's trying to maintain bone density as you age. And I think it was actually CrossFit people. I I got to give credit where credit is due that say, well, if you can deadlift in your forties, then bending over to pick up your dog poo in the park at age 70 isn't going to be that hard. If you can do an overhead press in your, in your fifties, then putting the groceries on the top shelf in your eighties isn't going to be that hard. So I, I think you're, you are seeing a lot more older people do weight training. I don't think it needs to be, you don't need to be in the gym for three, four hours a day. Yeah. I, I would say the minimum training effect from that for simple whole body weight training once a week, you get a pretty good effect from it's diminishing returns. I mean, obviously you want to look really good for the beach. You should do it more than once a week. You want to just not get old as fast once a week. And I think more importantly, or not more importantly, just as importantly, doing some kind of cardio, uh, especially if you're really injury prone, to push yourself hard enough on the mats to get a sustained cardio burn and have a sustained cardio improvements is, is difficult. And each minute that you're training at that level where your heart rate is, you know, call it 80% of your maximum, that does incur an injury cost. So if you can train more sanely, but then do Tabata intervals on the bike, if you can train more sanely, but then go for a hard 30 minute run, if you can train more sanely, but then uh, do something else where you really challenge your heart and your lungs, it's only a good thing. And again, uh, yes, it's great for jujitsu. I think endurance is the limiting attribute for many people, not for all people, but for many people. But also each minute of cardio that you do is helping pay the rent towards not having that heart attack, not having that stroke. I mean, show me a single uh, internal condition where having stronger heart and stronger lungs isn't good for you. Uh, I'll wait. It, it doesn't exist. I mean, everything from Alzheimer's disease to heart attack to stroke to blood sugar, it all helps. Especially when we're in a society where going to McDonald's for breakfast is just an accepted thing, you know, because it's on the high street on your way to work. It's yeah. Well, you, you can't out-exercise a shitty diet. I think that's a truism. Actually, that's not 100% true. I have met triathletes who are training, you know, uh, it, it talks, it's, it's interesting to take a look at the triathlete model, right? Most triathletes spend way more time on their bike than they do running. Their sport is running, swimming, and biking. So a naive analysis would say you would spend one-third of your time biking, one-third of your time swimming, one-third of your time running. But that's not what they end up doing. They end up spending way more time on their bike. Why? It's because running is intrinsically damaging to the body. It's, it's, it's hard on the body. Yeah. It's hard on the body. So yes, they have to run, but a lot of the benefits can be gotten with a lower impact cycling. So they're turning themselves into a giant set of heart and lungs. They're doing just enough running to get the, the sort of the muscular specific conditioning and the neuromuscular patterning. But they're doing way more safe biking than they are doing unsafe running. So in a similar way, as you get older, I, th I think doing cardio is important. But training hard enough to have your heart rate elevated to make it a decent cardio workout 
in a purely with just with jujitsu does carry a higher injury risk per hour of training than than even running. And if instead of running, we're talking about hiking uphill, or we're talking, uh, you know, God help you if you want to spend an hour on the elliptical, that would drive me insane. But some people can do it. Uh, that is a lower chance of injury per minute of benefit received. Well, and I think again, this is another one of those things that isn't just a uh, a notion that we should follow as uh, older athletes. I think this is just accepted practice in real sports. It's just that jujitsu is not a real sport yet, and so we don't have the same uh, basic approach to sports science and nutrition and all that kind of stuff as real sports do. And so you get people who try to get all their conditioning from jujitsu, and that, that doesn't exist in literally any other sport. Yeah. In any think other of, sport, think they, of football. They're not saying okay. To practice that initial sprint off the line where you smash into other people, let's just smash into people for two hours in a row. Yeah, they, you don't you don't get game. Yeah, so th- there's always strength and conditioning that should be done, um, and in, in particular with you know if you're talking about strength training, I think that there's quite a bit of validity to the idea that you shouldn't do um, what I guess would be a sport in and of itself, which is something like uh, Olympic lifts or like powerlifting, like. If you're trying to do weight training as a complement to jiu-jitsu, don't do complex lifts that if you fuck them up, they'll injure you. And don't do super heavy lifts that will potentially injure you, right? Like don't be trying to squat 500 pounds. Don't be doing, you know, clean and press uh, explosively. Just do, real, you know, safe um, weight training that's just safe resistance training that a, a, a total amateur can perform without risk of injury. I think that's a really important thing because like the, the same kind of ignorant macho attitude that people might bring to their rolling, they might bring to their weightlifting where they decide that they've got to set, you know, a record on the snatch, which I mean, if I'm trying to set a record on the snatch, I'll be getting into a totally different activity than weightlifting. Ba-dum-bum. So the, uh, yeah, like I, I think we can, like we can recognize that those sorts of things are super beneficial, not just for older athletes, but in general for anybody doing any sport, you should be doing supplementary strength and conditioning. Because I've interviewed Josh Settledge and that's what he was saying is he, you know, he designed programs like he's a big component of jujitsu training, but also added in weight training. And he's like the strongest person's going to win the fastest, you know, the person with the best cardio, but it's not just, a random training program he designs programs that suit you so you're better on the mat so you're better in overtime and competitions you know and he's got some fabulous programs there but there is a lot of people who go or go to the gym and a pt will a personal trainer will set them up with a basic program that is not suited for the the you know the demands of the sport that they're doing because they're just taught that three sets of ten at you know barbell push-up is suitable and you're like Mm, really? well, honestly, most personal trainers at the gym have a six, you know, they probably enjoyed lifting weights themselves and they went and got a six week certification. So, you know, if you go to, I don't know what the, the big uh, puppy mill gym is in the UK, uh, but if you go to uh, Good Life Fitness and you go and get the personal trainer, it's kind of like going to a jujitsu club and getting taught by a reasonably good blue belt. It's not going to be personalized it's not going to be uh, individualized it's not going to be even high level you'll get something out of it if you if you know nothing but uh you know just like just like science fiction uh, you know 95 percent of 
personal trainers are crap, but 95% of everything is crap. So how would you then change jiu-jitsu? Would you, know, would you change the, the jiu-jitsu culture and coaching to incorporate a lot of what we've discussed? Or is this a wide-ranging classes and gyms you know, that you can find a, a sweat-infested, competition-heavy gym, or you can go to something like Gracie Baja where it's self-defense and it's all about making friends. And You know, would you change anything about how jiu-jitsu is coached? Because, I mean, you guys have awesome channels. You've got awesome instructionals. You know, you do all amazing stuff. But how would you change jiu-jitsu to all better? Jiu-jitsu is, all jiu-jitsu is beautiful. Rob? <laughs> <laughs> So, I, I mean, I, I would say that I'm trying to change jujitsu through uh, bjjconcepts.net. We, we've got a uh, – or bjjconcepts.com. Either one will get you there. Uh, we've got a, a pedagogy section where we are offering lessons on how to become a more effective instructor. I think that that would – the two things that I would change about jujitsu uh, would be just, you know, the, generally the culture. I mean, I think that we've got a – pretty terrible culture for learning and for uh, for just you know developing human beings into more effective grapplers because we limit the amount of human beings that are going to ever endure the sport uh, with the culture uh, and because the level of coaching is so utterly abysmal that even people who do want to develop are going to struggle to develop in a decent majority of the school. So like we could talk about this for hours, but literally the, the overall culture should change and the way that instruction is approached should change. And it should just become more professional. There should be more uh, science-based stuff. Like the science is out there. I'm not a genius. I'm not all that smart. I'm just literally saying that we should do some of the same things in jiu-jitsu that we do in other sports. Uh, so none of this is revolutionary, uh, but it, it, it's certainly not done very much. So, yeah, I would definitely change those two things if I could snap my fingers. Well, I, love and, I mean, I can't believe we've been speaking for an hour and 20 minutes. If, it honestly always feels like 10 minutes with you guys. So, like, I, I always love spending time with you. But now you've got some amazing instructionals. You've got BJJ for old fucks. For somebody who picks it up and starts using it, how would you want them to start using it going forward in their training, utilizing it between their standard training with their gym, but also that, and also fitting in BJJ concepts, you know, grapple arts, you know, maybe hitting up some things off uh, BJJ fanatics. How can we start using instructionals and combining this all together and to make us a better jujitsu athlete, competitor, whatever level you want to take it to? I think there are so many different ways of learning that it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all. Like, say you buy an instructional. If, if all three of us buy, uh, buy the same instructional, we're all going to learn from it differently, and we're all going to come away with different things. Hopefully, that instructional is designed to be... Uh, you can visit it more than once. It's designed to give you more than one thing. So you might go to it, and you're going to come away with a detail for a pant grip... Uh, to finish a sweep better. I might come away with an understanding like, oh my God, I was totally off balancing the person the wrong way. I was trying to tip them, you know, I was trying to kazushin them backwards. I should have been kazushin them forwards. And Rob might see something entirely different, you know, like, oh, I didn't, I hadn't thought about transitioning from this position to that position 
before. I've also seen some people, they just watch instructional once and they're good to go. Other people I know make spend hours and hours and hours and hours making super detailed physical notes with pen and paper and have their own nomenclature and their own system of symbols. So I think the where people are is so different and where people, how people learn is so different. It's hard to give a one size fits all description. Uh, I mean, watch the damn thing, go and try one of the things. Don't start by like, oh, this is a super cool sweep. I'm going to go try it on the best black belt in the class because he will crush it and he will crush your hopes and dreams. So, you know, start with the lightest, whitest white belt. And when you can do it repeatedly to him or her, then move up Then do it to the slightly heavier white belt, a slightly better white belt and work your way up and try that technique, try that training method, try that combination, try that strategy and start low. That is once you're not the, the most junior guy in the class anymore, the, the white belt, everyone below you is an experimental vessel for you to try out that idea, that combination, that technique, that detail, that training method, and to get better at it. And then you deploy it on the more senior people. And Rob, have you got any thoughts? Uh, I mean, I would really just echo what, what Stefan said. I, again, so much of this, the, you know, what we're talking about is just applicable to everybody across the board. You know, how you develop a new skill is by trying it out on people that are worse than you. <laughs> it, it's it's pretty damn difficult to do something on people who are better than you. Mm -hmm. And so like trying to like, yeah, like, you know, if as long as people are realistic about what an instructional is, right? An instructional is something that's going to teach you something that you will be able to use given the right circumstances. Uh, if people purchase instructionals as a shortcut, like, oh, you know, I'm a blue belt. I want to beat that brown belt. So I'm going to get this instructional and learn a secret move that that brown belt doesn't know and use it to beat him. Man, <laughs> you're going to be in for a world of frustration. Uh, so just, yeah, recognize that the pathway to developing any skill, whether it's coming, like it's it, irrespective of the source, whether it's coming from an instructional or it's coming from your instructor or it's coming from YouTube or it's coming from your buddy, the process is still going to have to be the same. You're going to have to play around with it a little bit. You're going to have to situationally spar it a little bit. You're going to have to try it out against people that don't really have that much familiarity with it and then work your way up to people who have some, to people who have a lot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just as long as you understand that, you should be successful. If you're, if you're trying to, like, there's no cheating the process. Every skill has to be, be developed incrementally. Uh, so as long as you're, you recognize that, you should be fine. I love speaking to you guys because you open my mind to jujitsu in a whole new light. You know, you start seeing color instead of just black and white. Where, like, when I was in Gracie Baja, that I just felt like I wasn't progressing. And now, following you guys and watching your videos, you're kind of like, "Whoa, there is far more to this. There's plenty of ways to kind of go on different." Maybe it was just a bad coaching at the time, but going sort of forward, then what was the the thing that you guys What's the like the thing that really hit you about being an older athlete? Because you've achieved some amazing things. You've competed over the years. What really hit home doing jujitsu as an older athlete? What was the or like what was a surprising thing that hit you about it? Well, initially when I started jujitsu, it was about when I was. I'll take that back. Initially, when I started martial arts, it was about fighting. 
it was about self-defense and fighting. And then the more I did it, and presumably became reasonably competent at defending myself, and presumably became reasonably competent at fighting, although uh, yeah, that no longer became the primary focus, right? And now it's more. I I really enjoy the activity. I really enjoy the camaraderie. I really enjoy the social interaction. So I never, you know, come for the fighting, stay for the friendships. Uh, that's uh, that was unexpected. That came at me, and I, I'm happy it's here. Okay, well, my answer is going to be uh, incredibly self-serving. But uh, the thing that actually surprised me and continues to do so is that um, I discovered that by being, let's say, a little bit um, intelligent about your training, you can continue to be effective far beyond what I thought was going to be my, you know, use by or best before date. Like there was a, uh, a point about, f I'd say five, six years ago, basically around when I turned 40, where I was rolling with a couple of my, um, uh, my students, my black belts. And I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to like keep up with you guys beyond, you know, like by, by next year, you guys are going to be kicking my ass. And that was five years ago. And, and I'm still able to hang in there with, uh, you know, my black belts who are around 30. Um, and I just didn't think that that would at all be possible. Uh, and I, the, the, the stuff that we are advocating for in the BJJ for old fucks instructional, the approach that we're trying to convey is what I credit with that. It's, it's understanding what to focus on, how to focus on it, how to train intelligently to avoid injuries, to avoid putting myself in positions where I'm out of training for any significant period of time, adapting around injuries, developing new skills. Uh, you know, we get older, our bodies get stiffer, et cetera, et cetera, but our minds can stay very sharp. Uh, and if you approach jujitsu with that eye towards it being an infinite puzzle, and there are solutions to problems that as long as you don't insist on using physical attributes as solutions to those problems, you can be a very effective grappler and continue to improve. I think that the version of me at 46 would beat the version of me at 40, which would beat the version of me at 35. Uh, and, and, and quite soundly, I think, because I've just developed more skills and more strategies, even though my body is not as capable as it used to be. So I think that was a huge surprise to me to still be able to hang in there with much younger athletes uh, and grapplers, even at my age. Hey, uh, Rob, can I ask you the final question? Because I did set this up earlier, and that was about, um, can you tell your story about the false positive you got from our guard passing? Yeah, so um, about a year and a half, yeah, probably about a year and a half ago now, uh, I was trying to get ready for Nogi Worlds, and I had a, a shoulder injury. I had a, a torn rotator cuff. So I basically wasn't able to train as much as I'd like in terms of actual rolling, which got me way more onto the whole, like, just do conditioning. And I, I competed having done about six weeks of conditioning and only about two weeks of jiu-jitsu training. And part of that process, uh, which I carried forward after Nogi Worlds, was uh, I had to reorient how I did my passing. I wanted to continue training. Uh, my shoulder was limited, so I couldn't do the kind of movement-based passing. I basically couldn't hold on to people's ankles and legs and do my usual um, leg drag, toriando-based passing as much as I'd like. And so I started investing a lot of time in tripod passing. 
And I got decently good at the tripod passing to the point where I felt like my cardio was really exceptional. Like I was getting through rounds with people and just was not tired. And I thought that my cardio was just really damn good. And then I got on the Airdyne and tried to, you know, thinking that I could do a certain level of, uh, of resistance and a certain level. I, I do Tabatas on the Airdyne of all sorts of varieties. Um, some people know the Airdyne as the assault bike. It's where you're, you're rowing and pedaling at the same time. So it's, it's the machine from hell for cardio. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so I, I got on the Airdyne and it turned out that my cardio was actually pretty dog shit. It's just that I was, my movement was so efficient during my rounds. I was focusing on just sweeping efficient, efficiently and then getting on top and doing tripod passing. So because I was able to work that passing style so effectively, I was just never in a position where there was much of a cardio demand on me. And so I just, I thought I was in great shape, but I was actually in pretty shit cardio shape. It's just my efficiency was through the roof and I was not being put in any positions where I had to tax my lungs. And so I had a huge false positive thinking, oh, at the end of every round, man, I'm not even tired. My cardio must be great. It had nothing to do with it. It was entirely the, uh, the tripod passing, which is uh, in what we're going to focus on quite a bit in the, uh, in the next volume. Love it. Well, until I can get in to watch that and review it and promote it, what do you want people to take from this? I mean, I know there's so much there. The instructional is fantastic. The quality, the concept, the range of things that you cover it is amazing. And I highly recommend it to anybody listening who even is contemplating jiu-jitsu as an older, younger athlete, male, female, there's so much you can get from this. But what would you want people to take from this interview? That it's, well, first is just opening up the possibility that it's possible to keep on training as you get older. Uh, second is the idea that you do have to change what you do as you get older. Uh, and the third is that, you know, injury is the enemy, that you have to change what you do and change how you train and how you do it uh, to avoid getting injured. If, if, you know, injury brings all progress to a halt. So the, the best thing you can do to get better faster is to not spend six months recouping from an injury yeah and like focus on developing your mind and your skills uh, to just work around what your body is or isn't capable of uh, and then also become hyper aware of how you can protect your body and for people who want to follow you and your social medias you know purchase the the um the products the instructional join bjj concepts how can they keep in touch? And do you have anything coming up like competitions or seminars that you want you would like to promote? Well, I can be reached on um, uh, on Instagram uh, at Island Top Team, and we also have a, an Instagram account for BJJ Concepts. It's just at BJJ Concepts. Um, I'm going to be doing Nogi Worlds. Uh, uh, you know, hopefully. Uh, Without any uh, injury uh, getting in my way, I'll be doing Nogi Worlds in December uh, of this year. That's my next competition. Um, no seminars off the top of my head that I can think of. Yeah, and uh, if people want the DVD or the streaming version of the uh, the first of the BJJ for Old Fucks, that's the guard version, they can go to grapplearts.com forward slash old guard, all one word. It's also available 
on the GrappleArts BGJ Master app, which they can download uh, for their phone, for their Android or their Apple phone. And they can check out the first couple of techniques from every from all the five sections for free. So that's, a, that's an advantage of the app. And, you know, if you look for Stefan Kesting on any social media platform, you should hopefully find it. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.